go to the hospital, when we, when we have aches and pains, we realize our need more and more. But whether we have good health and we go about from day to day, we still need you every hour. Father, I would ask that you would be near those. We talked about a whole lot of people today. We ask that you'd be with those of the Sunnyland Elementary, that they've lost a principal and they wonder why. They have lost a good friend, a teacher, and uh, they wonder what in the world is going on. So Father, I, I can't unravel all the complexities of what's going on there, but you can. So we ask that you would uh, bring people to yourself. Ultimately, that is what is going to heal people is if they fall in love with the Savior. So we ask that even though this is a crisis and a calamity for many, that they would somehow, somewhere, if through someone, have Jesus revealed to them. We pray for Terry Telganoff. He's a friend of mine, as well as many in this church, and he's going to have a knee replacement. So we ask that you would allow this to have a successful surgery. And for some, that's kind of painful, and it's a journey of healing. So we ask that this would be um, a good thing for him, that he could look back and say, it was, it was good that I had that surgery because I feel a lot better and I have more mobility. So be with him. And we ask for Judy as she's gotten a burn or Sharon with breast, breast cancer that she needs encouragement. So those, whether they're healing from a recent injury or whether they have just went through surgery and they're hoping that the prognosis will be optimistic, uh, we ask that you would be with both of them. And it reminds me of when my son had cancer and you look at every single report that the doctor gives and every phrase the doctor gives and you're looking for that optimistic report where you're cancer-free and that you can go about your business. So there are people like Sharon and others like her that are living day to day with a certain amount of fear. They certainly have apprehension knowing that um, this could reoccur at any time and then they have to go through all kinds of treatments. So Father, we ask that you would give them encouragement and assurance that you're the savior of their life. And also with Brian, he's on a kidney and pancreas transplant list and those can go for years. As Mike says, yeah, he's kind of nervous about this and kind of concerned. And These things go for years. So, Father, we ask that you give Brian and, and others a peace that passes all understanding as they wait and they wait. And unfortunately, many times they have to wait for somebody that's healthy to pass away in order for them to get that transplant. We pray for Erin and the troubles that she has at home. I pray that you would give her courage to speak when she needs to, and if she needs to leave that situation and go elsewhere, that she'd have the courage to say that so that people who love her can, can step up and help her. So she's uh, hundreds and hundreds of miles away, but we ask that you would be with her, that you'd be with her in, in the complexities of her life that we're not even aware of. And finally, we want to pray for, for Jerry Monson as he is going through a journey here that is just not pleasant. We ask that you would just heal him, whether it's an infection or whether it's just a sore leg that he's going through or whatever that infirmity may be, that you would, you would be with him, that you would heal him. And we as a congregation, through all of these people that we've talked about, that we can be an encouragement to them, whether it be a note or a phone call or a visit, that you, they could be the arms and the feet of Christ as they minister to these people from day to day, that you would... Uh, guide them, that you would allow them to be Jesus. 
So we thank you for the word that we're going to be talking about. We ask that it would go out and that it would not return void, because you have promised that in your word, that your word will go out with power and it will not return void, and for that we thank you. In Christ's name, amen. There's some things that we talk about that I get more excited about than other ones, and although this passage may seem to be a little bit, um, I don't know, I guess the word would be innocuous, it's not that huge of a passage, from, from my perspective, this is a really cool passage because I guess my, my wiring has been, obviously, as, as a police officer, but then also when you go to court and you can methodically go through something and you can, like, prove a case one way or another. And in, in this particular situation, we went through the Beatitudes, and then we went last week that we're supposed to be salt and light in the world. We talked about what all that's going to be. And now we're going to be going to Matthew 5, verse 17, and we're going to be continuing on, and we're going to talk about Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. And I really, I really like passages like this. On first blush, you'd look at this passage and go, I don't know what's so all fired important about this, but it is. So you have to take my word for it. It's not uncommon today in some liberal seminaries for a young man to be taught that if he stands firm on the high view of Scripture like the church has in previous ages, he runs the risk of being what is called bibliology, bibliology, which is Bible worship. What, the, what, the, what it means by that is people are worshiping or venerating or in love with Scripture and not who the Scripture writes about. So they think that some people in seminaries, they go in there and they say, I love God's word. And they go, oh, no, 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 no. You can't love God's word. You've got to love Jesus Christ. And this is only a written book. Now, I get that. I get that. I get what they're saying. But this can be, it's valid, but it's misleading because what we're going to do today is a careful study of Scripture that maintains that Christ identified himself very very closely with Scripture, so as to interpret his ministry in the light of Scripture, it's virtually impossible to weaken Scripture, and at the same time, you'd weaken his ministry. This is what I'm saying. I want to show you through an analysis of, of these verses that we're going to go through that Jesus Christ identified so incredibly closely with Scripture that if we take this, this is just a book, then we are weakening the ministry of Jesus. They are absolutely linked. The strength of the, of the writings of the Bible is directly linked to the strength of the ministry of Jesus Christ. If you weaken the inerrancy, there's your 25-cent word for the day, you're the inerrancy of the Bible, the truthfulness of the Bible, then you are weakening the ministry of Jesus. And that is what I want to start out with. So what is my purpose today in this message is I want to show that the ministry of Jesus was directly linked to the credibility, the authenticity of Scripture. This isn't just kind of a book that we can kind of take it or leave it or, you know, it's all subject to interpretation. So if you interpret it this way, that's fine. And if you interpret it this way, that's fine. No, Jesus was very specific when he came to earth and he, he uh, interpreted scripture and he fulfilled scripture in a very specific way. 
So we could say, accepting the teachings of Jesus is exactly the same, accepting what Jesus says in his ministry is exactly the same as taking a high view of Scripture and believing it as it is written. So, what did our Lord teach about the Bible? Well, he taught a lot of things, but in the most comprehensive way, he says it in verse 17, and we'll, we'll look at 18 as well. Maybe we'll go a little bit further, but for now I'll just read those, those two verses. It says in Matthew 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So that is what Jesus is saying. He, he's saying, I didn't actually come just to fulfill the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them precisely. That's really important. It isn't just kind of generally that Jesus came. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets precisely. So the first thing on your, on your um, outline in the back, it says absolute authority. Jesus is referring to the whole law and the prophets. And what it means by that, it says here in verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. The law for Jew is commonly known as the Pentateuch. Penta is five, Tuch is book, Pentateuch is five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That is considered by the Jew to be the law. Those were the law books, okay? And when you talk about the prophets, it's everything. You go back and there's, or not go back, you go forward in the Old Testament, you see there's what's called the minor prophets. There's the major prophets. The, you know, you've got Obadiah and Jeremiah and Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi. You've got all those, those prophetic books plus the Psalms and the Proverbs, okay? So what Jesus is saying there. I did not think that, do not think that I have come to abolish the first five books of the Bible or the remainder of the Old Testament. That's what he's saying there. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So scripture, scripture finds its fullest and completest meaning in Jesus Christ. When you look at some, some uh, pastors and academics and things like this, they'll say, what is the message of the Old Testament? If you were to just take a line, a sentence, what is the message? And they say, oh, it's the giving of the law, and it's the doing, no, 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 no. And I'll, and I'll stand on this very firmly. The message of the, Old of the Old Testament is the redemptive story of mankind if you don't look at Scripture through the lens that they're talking about Jesus Christ, then Scripture doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It really doesn't. You have to look at the, the whole Bible, specifically the Old Testament, because those are the ones that are kind of foggy. At the core is Jesus Christ. We must remember that Jesus Christ was the author of Scripture during the Old Testament period, and we know that. I have, by the way, I have a lot of tabs in my Bible today. i got to refer to these so it's Tab number one is orange, so we'll just flip to orange. Don't want to get that messed up. It says in Hebrews 1, I just said that Jesus Christ is the author of the Old Testament. Hebrews 1, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers 
through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Okay, right there. God is the author. Jesus Christ is God, God's son. He is the author of the Old Testament. So we have the Bible is about Jesus Christ. The Bible is for Jesus Christ, and it is by Jesus Christ. So we have Jesus as the author. What does the author of the Old Testament and the New Testament say? He says, well, Jesus Christ is going to be coming. And then Jesus Christ came, and he told us about our whole, our whole, his whole ministry, and then Jesus Christ was crucified and resurrected, and he rose from the grave, and what does he now tell us about Jesus Christ, starting in Genesis and going all the way through? So now we're going we're gonna to look at it this way. Regarding his absolute authority, scriptures are not subject to recall. They're not subject to editing or alteration. I'm going to give you an example, and I'm, I'm going to make an example of the United States Supreme Court. If there is a dispute with somebody or, or some law, or, they'll bring it to the Supreme Court, and can we agree the Supreme Court is the final word? If you have something that you are in dispute about, the, the Supreme Court is the final word. And what they say goes, and it can, it can remain that way for decades and decades and decades. Okay, so let's say you bring something there, and they say, nope, we're going to leave the law the same. It affects millions of people. But let's say somebody brings something to the Supreme Court, like segregation of schools. And the Supreme Court says, nope. We're going to reinterpret that. That is not right. We need to have mixed races in schools. That ruling is the final word, and it affects millions of people for decades, maybe decades and decades and decades. But my point isn't whether their rulings are right or wrong. My, my point is they are the final word. And Jesus Christ has said that God's word is the final word. And just because we may not agree with it doesn't mean that it's going to change. It is the final word regarding who Jesus Christ is, what he has done, and what he continues to do. Jesus Christ believed that the Bible was the supreme authority over life, and there is no further appeal. The decisions contained in the Bible have affected and will continue to affect the lives of men everywhere. And what was the response of Jesus to this? Total conformity to what the Bible says. Even though heaven and earth were to pass away, nothing would pass from this book until everything it speaks of had come to pass. That's what Jesus had to say. I'm going to go to the, the smallest part, and this is my fault because Jenny has me edit the, the bulletin, and I missed this. In fact, I missed two. The smallest part I put on there, there is such a thing in your, if you were to look in your pew, pew Bibles, it's page 961, Matthew 5 is 961, and your pew Bible does not have this. Some of your translations will have it. As I read in my Bible, which is the NIV, it says, I tell you the truth until heaven and earth dis disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law. That is one way of writing it. You, some of your versions may say, not one jot or tittle will disappear. Okay? Now, for us, you go, what in the world did you just say? But that was a common phrase with the Jews. 
They were, they were used to that. They understood what that, mean, that meant. And what it, what it means is a jot, as you see in your outline, is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It is the smallest letter. I would, if I were to ask, how many of you are familiar with the expression, it doesn't make one iota of a difference? Okay, that's where this came from, is that is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet is iota. And when you say it doesn't make one iota of a difference, that means it doesn't make the smallest difference to me. The absolute tiniest difference. That's what is being said here. So Jesus is saying that the, the most minute details of the law are of utmost importance. And the thought was not even the smallest part of the law would perish or be forgotten. Not the smallest part of the law. And then it goes on to talk about that word tittle. Tittle was in the Hebrew alphabet was the, the most tiniest addition to a letter. And since we don't, me included, I'm not familiar with the Hebrew alphabet, I gave you an English equivalent. If you were to look at the letters, capital letters C and G, you'll see there's a tiny little difference between those two letters. That's a tittle. That is an example of a tittle. Or if you look at, a, at an O or a Q, that would be an example of a tittle. Just a little tiny line on the letter shows the difference. What Jesus is saying, not a jot or a tittle will be lost in the law. It is all of utmost importance, and it will not change. It will not disappear until the law has been completely fulfilled. Then the question could be asked, do you, do you and I believe this? Or do we just kind of go, well, you know, you just kind of take it, kind of take it as it comes. I may, I may take a little bit of it, and I may leave a little bit. Jesus, Jesus did not teach, teach that. He did not say that you can pick and choose what scripture we like to believe and what we want to obey, and we can ignore the rest. In, first, in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, all scripture is God-breathed. Or you could say, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All scripture is God-breathed. So then we go on to fulfillment of scripture. This is probably the part that starts to get to the heart of what this, these verses have to talk about. Jesus went on to teach that not only is Scripture absolute, and not only is every part of it absolute, but also that he had come to fulfill it. This means that Scripture finds its fullest meaning in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is at the core. Jesus Christ is the author Jesus Christ is the fulfiller of the law and the prophets, and Jesus Christ now is telling us about what he has done. He is the core of all of this. And I want to read you a, just a, a small paragraph. We must remember that Jesus Christ was the author of Scripture during the Old Testament period, as seen in Hebrews 1. After the Old Testament, Jesus was the one who came to earth to fulfill it. And then he inspired the New Testament writers to in, interpret correctly the things he had already done. 
In fact, Jesus foretold his coming. He came, and then he told men about it. It's all about Jesus. And how seriously did Jesus take Scripture? He said, not the least stroke will be lost. Everything will be accomplished exactly as Scripture says. So, if we were in a court, and, you know, I oftentimes refer to court, because I frankly, I kind of enjoyed it. They, they say in court, if you wrestle with a pig, you find out after a while the pig enjoys it. I was the pig. After a while, I kind of enjoyed it in, in an odd way. So, and it seems to make more sense when you're on the stand, but, you know, that's, that's how you look at it. The, the, what I want to do now is, okay, I have made, I have made the proposition or I made the assertion that Jesus Christ took Scripture very seriously. He fulfilled it exactly, and nothing in Scripture is going to fall, such as a jot or a tittle. It will all be preserved until it's all been fulfilled. Okay, that's what I've just been telling you. Now what I want to do for a few minutes, I want to talk about some Scripture. Did did Jesus really use Scripture? Or is this just a passage in isolation where he says, all Scripture is going to come to pass, and not one jot or tittle will fall to the ground? Is that all he said? Or do we have an example that Jesus actually used Scripture? Well, we do. And he used a lot of Scripture. And if you were to turn one page back in your pew rack Bible, if you're using that, to 959, we see that Jesus was... Was raised, he was born, he was raised as a child, he, he lived however he lived, and Scripture doesn't tell us much about his teenage years. It doesn't tell us virtually anything. But what it does tell us is if you look in Matthew chapter 3, starting at 13, the baptism of Jesus. So there was a time when Jesus went to John the Baptist, he was at the Jordan River, and they had a discussion, and Jesus was baptized. Right after he was baptized, Jesus went into the wilderness. And there he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And after he went into the wilderness, he was tempted by Satan. Okay, he was tempted three times by Satan. And this was the one, to kick off the ministry of Jesus, this was the most intense spiritual temptation that Jesus had yet experienced. So, when Jesus is tempted by Satan three times, how does Jesus respond? He responded each time by quoting Scripture. And all three were from Deuteronomy, part of the Pentateuch, the, the, the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy means second law, meaning it was repeated a second time. That's what Deuteronomy means. So Jesus, in chapters, where we got? chapters 8, and twice in chapter 6, repeats Scripture to Satan, meaning he takes Scripture very seriously. It also means, as we've given sermons months ago, Jesus was a rabbi, and he knew Scripture very, very well. And he could take, take it out, and he could quote it just like that. So, we see in the first temptation, uh, Jesus has gone into the wilderness, He's tempted by Satan, and Satan basically says to Jesus, listen, I don't want to tempt you as a man. 
I would just assume that we, we have a more equal footing. So Jesus, why don't you strengthen yourself supernaturally by commanding these stones to become bread? And Jesus says, in effect, no, I will defeat you as a man by depending on Scripture, for it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's in Deuteronomy in chapter 8. So then the second time, Satan says, all right then, if you want to use Scripture, I can do that. I'm a Bible student myself, and in that capacity, I would like to remind you what Psalm 91 says. And if you look in your Bible, you will see that Satan allegedly quotes from Psalm chapter 91. Only, here's the deal, Satan quotes it inaccurately. He doesn't quote it right. He leaves out a line. Now, it doesn't diminish what Satan is trying to do, but it does say, Satan, you aren't quite a student of the Bible that you thought you were. If you look in your Bibles on chapter Matthew chapter 4, verse... Six, Satan says, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. They left out, he left out one line. It should read, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And then the latter part of it is correct. He left out a line. But nevertheless, Satan is saying, why don't you trust that promise that I just read? Why don't you trust that promise by throwing yourself from the temple? When God does bury you up, he will provide you a supernatural defense to your religious claims. But Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 6, do not test the Lord your God. And by this time, Satan is on the defensive and he essentially says, all right, all right, I know that you're able to win this struggle and that you will win it, but I can order things so that you will not have to die on the cross to rescue this world for your purposes. And this is a true statement that I'm going to say. The world had been entrusted to Satan temporarily, and Jesus knew that the world had temporarily been entrusted to Satan. So Satan says, I will give it all to you, if only you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus replied with a final comment from God's word, fear the Lord your God and serve him only. Which tells us in the greatest spiritual battle of Christ's life, in a direct encounter with the devil, victory was won, how? By direct quotation of three verses from the heart of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ, valued scripture, and when tempted, utilize it. But I have other ones. Let's take directly after the temptation of Jesus, directly after it. If you were to look at Luke chapter 8, you don't have to, or Luke chapter 4, you don't have to turn there, but you'll see that, that after Jesus was tempted, it says, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until a more opportune time. And then Jesus left the area of Galilee, and he went to Nazareth, his hometown. He went into the synagogue, and when he was in the synagogue, as was the custom of the day, is 
It says here in verse 16, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the document, and he said a couple other things, but then he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in all of your hearing. Did Jesus take scripture and the fulfillment of prophecy seriously? Absolutely he did. Absolutely. And it goes on. If you were to look in... Matthew chapter 11, Matthew chapter 11, is we see John the Baptist is in prison. John the Baptist is in prison, Matthew 11, I'm going to start at verse 2. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him. Here's the question that John the Baptist is having his disciples ask Jesus. Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect? someone else. Now the answer that Jesus gives in our type of conversation would be very confusing. Just answer the question. Jesus, this is how Jesus answers the question. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. This is now referring to Isaiah 61. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. What was that answer supposed to be? The answer is, go back in Scripture, tell John, go back into Isaiah 61, and what were the prophecies foretold about the Messiah? It says, well, Isaiah 61 says, the coming Messiah would one day make the blind see, make the lame walk. The Messiah would one day heal those with leprosy, have the deaf hear, etc., raise the dead, etc., etc., etc. That is what Isaiah is saying, is one day a Messiah is going to come, and this is what he's going to do. So Jesus says, not only believe what the scriptures say, but evaluate my ministry in light of what scripture says. What am I actually doing? Is it fulfilling prophecy? Well, absolutely it was. So the answer to John was, tell him, is what you see fulfilling prophecy that is written in Isaiah 61? Clearly it was. Your answer is, yes, John, he's the guy. He's the guy. You don't have to worry. He is the one. Another one, it goes on. If you look in uh, Matthew 22. Matthew 22. There's a discussion by the Sadducees. The Sadducees, you have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the teachers of the law. The, the Pharisees are very legalistic. The Sadducees, I always... My mind's only got so much hard drive, so I've got to remember really small phrases, otherwise it doesn't stick. Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. You can always remember it. Sadducees means they did not believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. 
Okay, that's just an easy way to remember it. See, see how you, you got to have an association. Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, so they wanted to trick Jesus with a question about the resurrection. And they says, well, you know, if a woman marries and she has a husband and then, then that husband dies and the next one dies and the next one dies, and who is she going to be married to in heaven? Well, the, I'm not going to get into that, but what Jesus does is first chastise the Sadducees for not studying Scripture and understanding it appropriately. It says, you are in error because you, not know, you do not know the Scripture or the power of God of the resurrection. People will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they will be like the angels in heaven. But about the last resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God has said to you? Here's the point. Jesus says, I am the God of Isaac, of the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus Christ embraced Scripture, fulfilled Scripture. He did not say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Jacob, or of Isaac, or the God of Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which means present tense, I still am. It isn't that I was at one time and I'm not anymore. So he is the fulfillment of Scripture. If we were to go on, you could say Jesus appealed to Scripture on many other occasions, such as the cleansing of the temple. He says, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And I don't want to make this, this message so confusing that I can give you backup passages for all of this. But I don't want to stop and keep throwing out passages and pretty soon you're flooded with these passages, but I have all the references to them. You could say Jesus appealed to Scripture in his submission on the cross. His submission on the cross, which is Matthew chapter 26. You can say when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and, the, and they were going to come and arrest, uh, arrest him, he says, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Here's the verse. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Jesus was familiar with Scripture. He knew it had to be fulfilled precisely and exactly, and he would not deviate from the fulfillment of Scripture. We also see that Jesus said in John 10, the Scriptures cannot be broken. The script, there's another Scripture that says, they will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And I could go on. I go on and on and give you verses where Jesus referred to Scripture. He appealed to Scripture. He was very interested in what Scripture had, and he never, ever changed Scripture. Even where it says on the cross, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is a reference to the Psalms. Jesus says, I thirst on this cross. It was, a, it was a, regarding prophecy in the Psalms. And people who have more time than I and you have, have calculated that there were some 300 prophecies in Scripture that were fulfilled by Jesus Christ, either by his ministry or things that came to pass exactly and precisely. 
So when Jesus says that not one jot or tittle will fall from the law, he says it will be exactly as it is written, which tells us in summary Jesus had an incredibly high regard for Scripture, meaning we should have a high regard for Scripture as well. And when it says something, we should pay attention and be obedient to it. Believe it or not, I could go on longer than you care. So I'm going to try and short-circuit this now. But I wanted to tell you, there is, when I have taught classes on, on the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament, people somehow get bogged down with the Old Testament and then the 400 years of silence after Malachi and before Matthew. And, they, and then we get into the New Testament, and they kind of think, well, it's this book, and then there's this great big divide, and then there's this book. And I wanted to make sure you got the phrase exactly right, so I had it written uh, in the outline in your bulletin. The conclusion part is the New Testament clarifies, completes, expands, or develops Old Testament theology, but it does not contradict or reinterpret it. That is really important. I can give you, an ex- I can give you a lot of examples, but I'll give you one. It says, Abraham will be God's man. Abraham is God's chosen. He will make him a great nation. But the fact is, as we go along and we get into the New Testament, God made him even greater and bigger than he had initially said. So does the New Testament contradict the old? No. It expands it. It makes it more complete. I call it, if if you're coloring a sheet of paper, he puts the sky in, and he puts in blues and hues and different colors to make the picture more vivid. It isn't that he takes the picture and throws it away and starts a new one. He makes it much more vivid and complete and beautiful. So when you look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament becomes greater and bigger and more fulfilled in the New Testament. The New Testament does not contradict or reinterpret the Old. That is is an incredibly important statement you might want to write in your Bible somewhere that you can refer to, because that is, that is a pivotal point regarding how the New Testament views the old and the other way around. It's very important that way. So, summed up, Jesus believed Scripture. Jesus submitted to Scripture, and Jesus taught that a person would only believe in him as he believed Scripture. And as I told you before, there is a connection between the importance of Scripture, and the importance of Jesus' ministry. And if we have a low view of Scripture, that it's just a book, and kind of take it or leave it, then you have a low view of the ministry of Jesus. If you have a high view of Scripture, it is linked to the ministry of Jesus, then you have a high view of the ministry of Jesus, and that is exactly what we should have. We should have a high view of both of these, that they are absolutely important, they are absolutely precise, they mean what they say, and the law will not be diverted from in the least degree. There you have it. I could have said more, but I, hopefully I've made my case. And if, this was, if you were a jury, you would be convinced about the importance of Scripture. We're going to shift gears significantly right now. And Vaughn, would you come forward, please? Vaughn has asked if he could become a member of this church, and he and I had a nice visit. And... 
we're going to take this morning, we're going to take this time, we're just going to, it's, it's going to be real simple, and I think as an example for all of you out there, this is going to be a good thing. This is not something where you need to slash your wrist, and he and I, we, we merge our blood. No, it's not like that. This is not that hard. But what it means is he has made a choice that he wants to commit to this church and see that he is loyal and a supporter of this church. It's all it is. So, Vaughn, do you believe in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you believe the scriptures contained in the Old and the New Testament are God's word? Do you, will you follow and obey them to the best of your ability? Do you commit that you will support, serve, and pray for this church? Congregation, if you will stand. To you, do you receive Vaughn into fellowship at Linden Community Church? If so, say, we do. We do. Will you walk with him, support him, and pray for him? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that Vaughn knows you as your Lord and Savior. And I pray that as he becomes part of this church in a more intimate way, that you would bless him and you'd also bless us by his presence. So, Father, we want to conclude this service knowing that you are King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and you take your church very, very seriously, because it's for your church that you suffered and died. Now Vaughn can say that he isn't, this isn't the gateway to heaven to be part of this church, but he, has a, he is saying that he is going to be loyal to this church and pray for this church, and in a way different than it was yesterday, be intimately involved in this church. And for this, we give you thanks. And we thank you for him and these other people as well. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, Vaughn. Worship team, if you come up here, we can close with a couple songs.